Hi, my name is Evan and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian and I use they, them pronouns. And this is If the Shoe Fits Star Crossed, a podcast about stars and crosses. <laughs> a lot of crosses. A lot of crosses. In Especially this in this one, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get there. But first and foremost, it's a podcast about Romeo and Juliet stories. This is mid-season. We did it. So we thought we'd do a quick check-in mm-hmm. on what we've learned so far and how it's affected our understanding of the Romeo and Juliet story. Right, right. Now, the obvious answer that I would say, jokingly, of course, is I didn't learn anything. But <laughs> but I think I think there's stuff that we've definitely like learned or because this happened last season too with Cinderella. You know, as the season progressed, we kind of our expectations of what a Cinderella story very much changed as the season progressed. And I think something similar is definitely happening here. This is like a clip show. Where we're going to like introduce each, each idea and then play a clip. We don't have the budget for that. <laughs> we don't have the time for that. Well, and I feel like a, a big part of that where we were really grappling with what the Romeo and Juliet story was, was in the Titanic episode where we really were trying to break it down to its elements. And I think my big takeaway from that was that a big part of it for me is that the two main characters are in love recklessly. I think the mm. recklessness of it is important to me in terms of what, what makes it a Romeo and Juliet story. Right. Because I remember when we started this, it was a lot of it that like we thought was Romeo and Juliet story was the dueling families or the two sides Mm -hmm. that have a conflict and as we are progressing and seeing that not every story has really two sides i I definitely agree with you of the importance of the love story you know i think the the love story of between our two leads i think is the most important part instead of this side versus this side. Right. And then like bonus points if you also resolve some sort of like long-standing conflict. But I really came into this being like Romeo and Juliet is a story about a feud and how it ends. And I'm, you know, I think that that at least in terms of how it's adapted, it's a story about a crazy romance. And I think we always kind of deep down knew that. I mean, spoiler alert, we're theater people if you didn't know that. And I think deep down, we knew that the story was all about the love story. I think the counter example to that is Lion King 2, which I think manages to to do both. Like there is a love story there, but there's also a, a real focus on the conflict between two parties, two sides, um, and how it gets resolved. And I like when that's there in a story and I, you know, I, I miss it when it's not there, like in Titanic. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is, is that Lion King 2 is the perfect Romeo and Juliet adaptation. Call Ellen. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to eat my hat. We started off the season with the Zeffirelli film mm-hmm. to, to try to set a baseline for what Romeo and Juliet is in the popular imagination. Or at least how, like, I, again, I don't know about you, but like that version is how I imagine Romeo and Juliet in its most basic form. Mm-hmm. 
but I think even that one in trying to set a baseline, one of the big takeaways was how much a good director can make it their own. Well, I think also that film kind of made us realize that there's not going to be a perfect adaptation of this story. Right. I mean, if we could get in our time machines and go see it as it was originally performed at the Globe, the Zeffirelli one is is not that. It's very cut down and very um, edited. There's a lot of Zeffirelli in that movie. Mm-hmm. The closest, I suppose, we get to watching the original production at the Globe was uh, watching Shakespeare in Love. Right. But even then, that was more about like the behind the scenes, the making of it. It wasn't us seeing a full three and a half hour full on production of Romeo and Juliet. No, but it did feel like there was an attention to detail in terms of uh, costuming and makeup and things like that, that at least without knowing if it's true to life or not, felt like it gave the vibe of what it would have been like to be at the Globe when the show premiered or not the Globe at the the Rose, right? The Rose. They like, they like switch theaters halfway through the, sh- the movie. I don't remember which one they end up at. Shakespeare in Love also does that thing where there's not really a feud or sides where it's just about the, the two people, mm-hmm. the forbidden love angle of the story, which I think we're going to keep seeing. No, definitely. I'm, it, it's, it's interesting to see how they adapt the two sides for sure. I mean, it's a lot easier with the Montague and Capulets or like, for instance, Simpress Pride and Scar's Pride, whereas in Shakespeare in Love and even Titanic, you know, it's nobility, the rich versus the poor, the actors, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And it, I mean, what even is it in Bear? Um, there sort of isn't a feud in Bear unless it's like, the pretty teens versus the pretty teens. <laughs> right. Gays versus the church. Some of these, those adaptations that you just highlighted end up being, it's us against the world and not our two worlds are at war. Which also kind of feels like, like a pillar of Romeo and Juliet because they are two kids. And I, I don't know about you, but like when I was like, teenager i was like it's me against the world baby mm-hmm. the world is out to get me and i'm gonna get it first mm-hmm. i'm gonna get it before it gets me but i don't know if us against the world is the vibe of shakespeare's romeo and juliet you know i think they're star crossed not society crossed mm-hmm. that it's their fate that is at fault and that they're more focused on holding on to like one good thing in their life than they are in fighting the man, so to speak, you know? I wonder too, if the us against the world, like theme that comes across in them and subsequently has come across in other productions of Romeo and Juliet, if that's come from just like society moving forward with different, uh, protests and rights groups and such and just a feeling of people like saying like it's us against the man you know that whole stuff i I wonder if that has definitely had like an influence in the story Mm -hmm. well i don't think that people believe in like fate and the stars predetermining our destiny in the same way that they did in shakespeare's time now i think if you did a straight 
uh, adaptation, like the one we'll talk about in the second half, and set it in modern day, there's a certain part of it where it's like, these teenagers sure are, sure are seeing a lot of portents. They sure are um, getting a lot of weird omens. What's that about? <laughs> it definitely feels like the Us Against the World has replaced the the fate, you know, the um, mm-hmm. the fate of the stars. I don't know. I, I kind of like it. The two that we haven't talked about yet from the first half of our season are our prequel and sequel, Master of Verona and Anne Juliet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What completes the the R and J cinematic universe? Right, the trilogy. <laughs> Although, if if we're talking, if it was like a movie trilogy that happened in like today or in, even in the early 2010s, and Juliet would be split into two parts because it's the final one. Right, it has to be. Mm-hmm. It has to be two. <laughs> and Juliet could not, could not survive being any longer than it is. <laughs> It's perfect. What are you talking about? I love Anne Juliet, but I think it, I think um, we. I mean, we compared it to Mamma Mia at the time. I think that it, it knows what it's doing, and it knows not to overstay its welcome. I think it, it um, takes place in the appropriate amount of time. Well, what I find interesting about those two is that because we we've been talking a little bit about you know fate, and then like stick it to the man. What's a more perfect example of like? those two thoughts than Master Verona, which is about fate, and Angelette, oh, yeah. which is about sticking it to the man, right. Shakespeare. As represented by your parents or by Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Master Verona is all about fate and how people are moved by um, the stars and whether a person can choose their own fate or if they just have to react to what life throws at them. And then, yeah, yeah, I agree that Anne Juliet is is very much the like I'm going to take charge of my own destiny, and like my future is not foretold. I'm just gonna I'm gonna go to Paris. I'm gonna make new mistakes the same way. Where the the thing that Juliet is fighting with against is that she hasn't dealt with her with her messiness, with her own character flaws. It's it's a much more of an internal story. We um, really have a interesting crop of adaptations in the first half of the season. Mm-hmm. And I think like all of these, you know, <laughs> I think compared to especially the first season, you know, there were a couple of Cinderella's where we're like, mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> or like just a couple of Cinderella's that we were not feeling. I think what has been really wonderful about this season is that we've really not had any duds so far. Well, and I hope we do. I mean, the thing is, what I enjoyed about some of the duds in the Cinderella season was that it really teaches you why certain story elements are important when someone does a bad job at including them, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm grateful we saw Lion King 2, because the the romance in that is so like shorthanded to get the movie down to a reasonable length, presumably that I was like, Oh, I, I actually missed like some of the like character development and like their time together. It feels like it's really short. So that was a good reminder that that is important that the foundation of their relationship is important. But even then, like we have, we have not had our slipper in the rose of this season, which is very, we have not very nice. We should find one. And I think that Bear was sort of likewise instructive of something 
where you said, I don't, you know, I think I know what the Romeo and Juliet story is. I'm not sure that you quite hit it on the head. Um, Cause bears off doing its own soap opera thing for so much of the story. Right. Well, I think too, you know, with Slipper in the Rose last season, we kind of chalked it off to the style of movies in the time period that it was made, which was the seventies. And I think bear in a way kind of fits into that because it was made in the early two thousands and definitely has a lot of, early 2000 sentiments that do not fit with our 2022 minds. And I think the other um, element of that is that Bear left me saying, how am I supposed to feel about this when it's over? Mm. Which I think is a big question about it, about, about a tragedy. What do you want to see happen? And the answer in Bear is that Peter gets to tell the priest that he failed them, that his homophobia is the reason that Jason is dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mean, that moment sort of does exist in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, that the prince gets to tell the fathers, this is your fault. You know, the, this, this feud is the reason that these two people have died. And we're going in circles now, but I like when there's more to the story than just, just the, the romance. And isn't it how sad that they did not end up together, but, but also that there's some sort of like their love changed the world thing. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that I'll keep looking for. No, I definitely agree with that. And I'll definitely look for that more as we go on this season. I think again, it's just getting away from, the feud because i think personally the feud matters to set up the story i don't know if it matters at the end of the story as well, much com- to me completely disagree to me i completely disagree i th- you know i think that in shakespeare's romeo and juliet the feud is the reason for the season it's 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 why everything happens and it's the silver lining of the tragedy is that the fathers end the feud mm. I, you know, I, that's, that's why I started this season with that, with the feud mindset is because I think that that's what the story's about. I think that's a big part of what the story's about. No, I don't disagree with you. I, I just, for me personally, I think the feud sets, sets up the story. And then the story by the end is just about the, these two lovers. I'm also looking for a, balcony still i'm still looking for all the balconies if there's not a balcony it's not a romeo and juliet i'm saying it now i think you said titanic was a romeo and juliet and there was not a balcony i i never i i i never there there's a balcony in titanic is there a balcony in bear probably i didn't see the show (laughs) i don't think there's a balcony in bear but then it's not a romeo and juliet (laughs) you've heard it here first I think Romeo and Juliet is a story about being recklessly in love. I think bonus points if there's a balcony. Bonus points if there's a feud that gets resolved at the end. Yes. That's how I feel. Agreed. Although very few bonus points with the feud at this point. But the feud is important for setting up the story. So Yeah, it still matters to me. The way that balconies matter to you. Right. Exactly. Anyway, shall we talk about Romeo plus Juliet? Yes, let's. I cry. Have I been for you to love me? 
Baz Luhrmann's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. <laughs> it's like who? It's like the chicken and the egg thing for who did it first, Baz Luhrmann or William Shakespeare? Well, so the official we'll never know. The official name of the movie is William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Romeo plus Juliet. Romeo plus Juliet. There's no, there's no and. Baz Luhrmann said no. No, it's it's modern day. They're hip and cool. Romeo plus Juliet. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. 1996. Baby. Romeo plus Juliet is an adaptation of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, uh, mm-hmm. interpolated into the modern day and set in Verona Beach, California. Now, when you say modern day, <laughs> I I'm in the 90s. Okay. There's consumerism. Yeah. There's a big Rio-esque statue of Jesus looming over everything. There's a drag queen. There's a drag queen. It's the modern day. It's the modern, well, the 90s modern day. 90s modern day. Directed by Baz Luhrmann, starring Leo DiCaprio and Claire Danes and Paul Rudd and Miriam Margulies. Yes. uh, And Paul Servino as Mr. Capulet. Mm Mm-hmm. And it uses Shakespeare's text, and it uses a lot of Shakespeare's text. I think a lot more than even the Zeffirelli film, honestly. It definitely does. I mean, there's there's a reason why this one and the Zeffirelli are the two most common, like, shown in high school Romeo and Juliet's. Mm-hmm. They're both pretty textually with some adjustments, faithful to the original story. Well, and in interviews, Baz Luhrmann has talked about wanting to do the film that Shakespeare would have made if he were a filmmaker. So he was sort of like, Shakespeare used all these like tools of the trade theatrically. Why shouldn't we be able to pull out all the stops and use all the tools at our disposal as filmmakers to tell this story? Mm-hmm. Um, and he does. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of visual spectacle and and... Uh, scene blocking even that you couldn't do on stage mm-hmm. uh, as well as you know intercutting things and and combining things in ways that help uh, tell the story overlaying things turning things into into monologue internal monologue right yeah no this definitely I would say this definitely feels like the film that William Shakespeare would direct if he was directing his own play and I feel like Anne Juliet would be like the musical that he would write <laughs> to continue the story. Right. Well, cause like Shakespeare loved putting modern music of the time into his plays. And Juliet is an example of that. Shakespeare loved the theatrics. He loved, you know, being, let's be honest, Shakespeare was chaotic. He loved being chaotic. This film is chaotic. <laughs> this film is very chaotic. I think Shakespeare would really love this film. Well, and I think that of the pieces we've dealt with so far, this is one of the most like movie movies. Like it's really taking advantage of uh, being a movie. I could not imagine uh, readapting this back to the stage. I mean, not only would that be a little silly to do, to do Baz Luhrmann's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet as a play, <laughs> you know, but it would lose a lot of what makes it special and interesting. Well. I think 
I think it can be done. You just need like the right director who understands Baz Luhrmann to do it. And a lot of money. Oh, definitely a lot of money. Like this will have to be an expensive. Right. This is not a a black box affair. (laughs) No, 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 no. This ain't your community theater. This ain't your church play. But also, I mean, I I think I'd still rather be a movie because there are multiple times we have these like big gunfights and car chases and there's helicopters and scenes that take place over large expanses of space. Uh, I mean, it really plays up this idea of like gang violence in cities um, in, yeah. in a way that makes it feel fresh and interesting um, and heightened, but still somewhat realistic that there's still a, a, a grittiness there. Yeah. It's definitely more of the actiony Romeo and Juliet's out there. But although I would say it's restrained, I mean, there's, there's some action moments, but, it knows how to switch modes and be sweet and romantic and tender. I mean, the thing that I always used to say about this movie is that like, it's the first Romeo and Juliet I'd ever seen when I was younger, where the like suspenseful moments really feel suspenseful, where the tender moments really feel tender, where the, mm-hmm. the shocking things feel shocking. I mean, the moment when Romeo and Juliet meet for the first time at the party, they're, eyes meet through a fish tank and i mean the the tenderness the like sweetness the music swelling i mean like yeah no watching watching that scene you're like am i in love with these people (laughs) (laughs) i it doesn't help that it's leonardo dicaprio and claire james who are not only attractive as all hell but just also very charismatic on the screen Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm and then the very the very final moments when um, Romeo finds Juliet and presumes her dead uh, at her at her uh, family crypt, you know, in the Shakespeare version, he he walks in and he finds her, and he takes his own life, and then she wakes up, and Friar Lawrence is there, and he's like, "We gotta go," and she's like, "Wait a second, is that Romeo?" And then she kills herself uh, after Lawrence leaves. In this version. Like she wakes up as he's drinking the poison in this like like a second earlier and he wouldn't have. And we like and we in the audience see her like beginning to twitch and move and her eyes open up and he's looking away and as he drinks the poison and and it, it's you know, you're you're like screaming internally. You're like, just look down, just see her eyes are open. Yeah, it definitely it reminded me of the production that Ellen saw where the exact same thing happened. Right. It, well, in Ellen's production, the sequence is a little bit different because they were, were both awake at the same time, but the implication was that the poison didn't work and that they were mm. going to be able to run off together and then Romeo drops. In this one, they both know he's dying, but he gets to deliver his last line, which is thus with a kiss I die, to her. They, there really does feel like an attempt to um, to make the scenes, to mine the scenes for all of the dramatic potential that exists there. Mm-hmm. The other example is the balcony scene. You know, I, I think like the Zeffirelli 
shows us a fairly typical, if you know, energetic way to do the balcony scene. Like the Zeffirelli version is so cute because they're like overly eager and they're like kind of can't keep their hands off each other. And that's very cute and sweet. But in this version, I mean, it sort of plays the the idea of the balcony scene as a joke. I mean, he starts, he sees like the light in the window and he climbs to the balcony. And then the person who comes out on the balcony is Miriam Margulies as the nurse. <laughs> and the the scene effectively happens in the pool beneath the balcony. To me, it's the first balcony scene where I really felt like, oh, Romeo's not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm, right. Like, there's, there's a lot of tension and a lot of... Um, who's observing and how visible are you? And, and also it's super sweet. And there's a, there's still that same, like we are crazy in love for each other mm-hmm. vibe going on. Yeah. I, I think this movie very similarly to the Zeffirelli really depicts like young teenage love very, very well. I also, what really fascinates me about this film is that because we talked about how like modern day this movie again was made in 1996 this movie could only be made in 1996 <laughs> you know because it has so much influence of that time period i mean at that point mtv was like the center of like pop culture you know with showing music videos and it definitely this film definitely feels like a music video at some points it also is at that time where like in the 90s do, do, i don't know if you remember this but do you remember like that from when you were young but what in at that point in the 90s where everything was like extreme <laughs> i do yeah so it's definitely like the combination of like the mtv music video and extreme it's romeo and juliet to the extreme oh yeah i mean and the other one that feels like like to the extreme is when Romeo comes back to Verona just to confirm that Juliet is dead. There's a full on police chase. Like, yeah. Cause he's exiled from the city. So there's like helicopters in the air. There's like police cars speeding after him. And he takes like a hostage. <laughs> and he's like firing at the police car so that he can get into the building where <laughs> Juliet is. They just kind of let him, I guess. Right. Yeah. That's a plot hole. So <laughs> wait, so they they're like shooting at him and like Romeo is shooting back at them and then he gets into the tomb and then they just go away. <laughs> they they do not try to break down the door. They don't. There there's no helicopters hovering around. There's no like scenes of like the cops or like everyone being outside being like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, and I don't mind that. I mean, I, I like the the grave scene is is really intimate. I mean, Fire Lawrence does not show up. The parents do not show up. Paris is not there. It's really just the two of them in the chapel. It's not. It's not a grave uh, site um, or a crypt. And I don't mind that. I mean, we we do like wrap things up really briefly at the end, um, showing the bodies getting loaded onto like a morgue vehicle. And we also end the same way we began, which is with a TV announcer reading the epilogue at the end and the prologue at the beginning. The intro we got to talk about. Well, before we talk about the intro. Yes. Because you mentioned um, that it's just them. Mm -hmm. And I really, really enjoyed that. I think this is one of the few Romeo and Juliet's 
where, because, you know, in the play and in other adaptations and films that we see, that, you know, there's points where we focuses on, focus on the other characters. And we get a little bit of that in this film, but this is like the first adaptation where I feel it is strictly about these two. Mm -hmm. Like there's very few interference or very few other scenes without them in it. So I I think compared to other versions, you really connect with this Romeo and Juliet. And I think that makes a tragedy at the end more tragic. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, but I think that is faithful to Shakespeare's text. I mean, there's not really a B plot in Romeo and Juliet. I think a lot of Shakespeare's plays, most of them have a B plot, some other romance or something going on. And I mean, there just isn't one. There's no thematically relevant other thing going on in Verona. Mm-hmm. It's all about R and J. Let's talk about this nurse and this friar. The friar is played by Peter Postlethwaite, um, who's good. He's fun. Very like. He's- I'm a very like modern, I'm a cool preacher kind of vibe. If if it were like today, he would like try to get you on a juice cleanse, it seems like. <laughs> right, exactly. He's like wearing a Hawaiian shirt. But the nurse <laughs> by Miriam Margulies. First of all, they cast Miriam Margulies and then asked her to do a like Spanish accent. Yes. Which is odd, which you know. It was it was twenty five years ago, and you know it it wasn't appropriate in the media landscape at the time. I think that it wouldn't happen now. I, well, I I say I hope it wouldn't happen now, but there, there's movies like I mean, the laundromat was like three years, three or four years ago, and that movie has Meryl Streep playing a Hispanic character. Does it really? Yeah. So so you know this kind of thing does still happen, right? I. It's not a super exaggerated uh, caricature. Which is nice. And Mary Margulies does a great job with the role, but it does feel like they could have cast a a Latina actor. That having been said... The nurse is still the best character. The nurse is still the best character. She's terrific. Um, (laughs) And they give her a lot of like reactions and and, um, funny moments. Although after like... I mean, I know it's like this in the play as well, but after Tybalt's death, for some reason, this nurse just seems less present than any other nurse. And maybe it's because we don't get the scene where she's wailing and crying that Juliet's dead. Mm-hmm. Right. But but after like a certain point, I, I miss the nurse a little bit. I kind of wish we had more nurses. She is one of the things that I remember about this movie, though, is about is like how fun the nurse is and how uh, much they make out of the scene when she gets back from getting the news from Romeo that he wants to marry Juliet and like delaying telling Juliet about it and her aches and pains and her aching back and another character, if I may, Please. that is like present and like on my mind throughout the entire film. Well, there's two, really. It's this Mercutio and this Tybalt. Yes. How could I forget? John Leguizamo plays Tybalt. Mm-hmm. Right. And Harold Perrineau plays Mercutio. Mm-hmm. Tybalt is... Doesn't have much to do in any version. 
uh, of the story. He just has to be like aggressive and showy, but John Leguizamo does it well, I think. Mercutio is a very complex role. There's just a lot of um, ups and downs because he, you know, brings a burst of energy in and then he immediately brings the mood down with his the weird Queen Mab speech. And then he has this scene where he's like, especially in this version, clearly feeling hurt and like wants to act out somehow. Um, you know, is a little a little off the rails and and dies um, mm-hmm. because of it. And Harold Perrineau does a great job playing all of those extremes. I'm I'm calling it now. When we do our Romeo and Juliet Oscars, Harold Perrineau is going to be our best Mercutio. <laughs> we shall see. Well, because I think out of all the Mercutios that we've seen so far, mm-hmm. he has been able to play those ups and downs the best. Yeah. And I think also it just has to do with what they've decided to do with the character. Mm-hmm. That definitely helps. I mean, playing the Queen Mab speech like he's high on drugs. Mm-hmm. Chef's kiss, being a drag queen at the ball and being the reason why and performing at the at the at the Capulet Ball and that being the reason why like he can get his friends in. Chef's I- kiss. I think that's a little confusing because the part we see him performing is when Romeo is tripping. Mm-hmm. So I'm unclear if he actually is performing. I think he might just have an invitation because he is, because the invitation to the ball is for anyone who isn't a Montague and he's mm-hmm. not related to the Montague family. I think that's why he can get everyone in. Because mm. it's, I mean, in this version, we see an invitation that's like, Mercutio and friends. Yeah. I just like the idea of him performing at the party as a drag queen, preparing for season whatever of RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh-huh. And then literally, like, I think if, because we've talked about this before, is Mercutio gay? Mm-hmm. This is the gayest Mercutio. Somehow. Somehow. I mean, yes, he absolutely is. Well, because I, I think out of all the Mercutios, he's the one that's most hurt by Romeo ditching. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's really affected and really like angry and upset at him. And I think only cause like you ditched us, you ditched your friends, but also like you can make an argument that you ditched me. Like I thought right. you liked me. Right. And that's at least how I, I think Harold Perrineau is playing the role. Right, totally. And I, th- I think that subtext exists in the scene uh, a lot of the time, but I think you really see it here. Going back to the prologue for a second. Yes. It's a feast. A lot happens. Um, we start out <laughs> with a TV news reporter just saying the prologue as we slowly zoom in on like a what I suppose is a 90s TV one of the things I love about the prologue here is that they keep the line where whoever does the prologue, the chorus, I suppose, says that it's uh, going to be two hours traffic on our stage. And the film is exactly two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. I love that that Baz kept the line in and took it seriously. Said this story is two hours. We're going to do it in two hours, including <laughs> credits. 
get you in, get you out. Um, but then we get the prologue read again over these like rapid fire shots showing um, the two, you know, big corporations, Montague and Capulet, um, showing violence in the streets, showing the significant players of the families, some shots of things to come. Um, it's a lot. And it really sets the tone. And then it's followed immediately by the brawl scene, mm-hmm. um, which is at a gas station, mostly, where the the elements of the two factions have run into each other. And it escalates into this all out, you know, guns out, uh, things catching fire. Also, <laughs> the gas station is called something like Phoenix. It's like Phoenix something. And then their slogan is add more fuel to your fire. So there's like <laughs> a lot of foreshadowing that's going to catch fire. But then there's like a huge gas fire. There's a lot of foreshadowing and like lots of like little, if you're a Shakespeare fan. Oh, There's yeah. There's a like, lot of little cute references to things. A lot of the signs in the backgrounds are Shakespeare references, which is yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. I will say I enjoyed the prologue a lot. I think there were, was a way that they could have combined the news anchor and the bombastic like chorus in the background prologue that we got. It just felt like two separate prologues. I'm like, what? What is? Why are we? Why? What? I right. just why, heard this. Why does it happen twice? This. Yeah. And I think there was a way to like put the bomba- the bombastic into the news part, you know, because mm-hmm. news editing exists, right? You know, there's always action shots or like showing what's happening on the scene. But I will agree that like that bombastic prologue really set the tone for the rest of the film and really took you on. It's it's like a launching roller coaster. It takes you from zero to hundred, real quick. Oh yeah, yeah. There are no stops on this roller coaster. No, lots of screaming too on this roller coaster. <laughs> I well, and I feel like that that first scene after the prologue does a lot of the job of setting the tone as well because I feel like when people talk about this movie, one of the things they always say about it is, "Oh, that's the one where." all the guns are called like sword or whatever, Mm -hmm. which is true. All of the guns in this movie, they always using guns have names like sword and dagger and rapier. Like that's the brand name of the gun um, to justify the not changing the Shakespeare text. And, you know, I think that's kind of goofy. And I think that there's like a, like, I think people, the way people react to it is sort of indicative of the fact that it's such an obvious reach such an obvious like we are not changing the shakespeare text we're just changing everything that it means moment um that it really sticks with people and i like that that sort of stuff only happens at the beginning that there is this sort of like exuberance in the opening sequences that that fades away as as things get darker they really get the like romeo is just like a sad boy poet kind of dude um Bad boy Romeo. Right. He's like smoking a cigarette and writing his journal wearing his Italian shirt. Wants to be alone on the beach. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, Has the long droopy hair. Right. Yeah. And then you have Juliet who I really loved Claire Danes as Juliet. Mm-hmm. There was just something about 
her portrayal that was just so smart. Mm-hmm. So and just made Juliet seem also just so smart, so cunning, right, and so well, in control of herself. And Miriam Margulies describes her as being really open, and I, I don't mean to like to new things, but like there's no guardedness in her in her portrayal of the character. I mean, she has this like childish naivete that she portrays really well. This like just unguarded, hasn't been hurt by the world yet feeling. Mm-hmm. That I think helps you buy when she does stuff that doesn't make sense because I, you know, Juliet has to. Say, you have to sell that she like rebels against her father in this big way when he's trying to get her to marry Paris instead of, um, you know, concocting a devious plan uh, first to pretend that she's going to and then figure something else out. I mean, she reacts emotionally and she does the same at the end of the story when she kills herself. So having having her be played that way, I think, really helps that land for the audience and makes sense for the audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love this movie. You know, I think that Baz Luhrmann's style is not for everybody, and this movie certainly has its detractors. But I, you know, I think it is a terrific example of what an adaptation of something can be. Uh, I think it balances being faithful to the text with being like an enjoyable movie experience really well. I think it hits both of those marks really beautifully. Nothing is just like regurgitated onto the screen based on how it's been done for the past couple hundred years. You know, everything feels feels fresh and interesting and new even mm-hmm. 25 years later. <laughs> I mean, we were joking about it before, but I really think it could be our ever after. I think it's going to be one of the best movies we watch this season. I don't know. Naomi and Juliet might come from... <laughs> <laughs> come from around the corner and surprise you you could i haven't seen it maybe it's amazing i no i i definitely agree with everything that you say i really really enjoyed this adaptation of the story i think it made it fresh and invigorating and i'm glad that we actually did it in the middle of the season because you know i mean something that we had with last season it was like you know, okay, it's Cinderella. We're doing the story. Okay, Cinderella, Cinderella. Where you know, we didn't really have like, we had some points where we we're like, oh, this is new, this is exciting. Let's go, let's go. And then it would just be like, okay, this is Cinderella. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like we we right. we. It's not that we got bored. It's just we're like, okay, this is it. Okay, right. great, great, great. It, this one is also Cinderella, right? And I'm happy that we did this now because I feel invigorated. I feel that this movie feels like the perfect cup of coffee that just wakes you up, gives you the caffeine boost that you need and ready to just like continue on and start your day. Well, I'm glad you're boosted up for our next episode. We'll be revisiting the creator of one of the Cinderella's from last season and watching Matthew Bourne's Romeo and Juliet. Another trip to the ballet. So we'll see if you need all that stamina you've built up from Romeo plus Juliet to get you through Matthew Bourne. I feel like not. I think he also is good at making things fresh and interesting, but we will see. I'm ready to dance it out. I'm ready. Let's go. So thank you all for listening. I hope you will join us again in two weeks time for that next exciting episode of If the Shoe Fits, and we will see you then. 